to be a yogi. I'm Edward Reeb, producer and host of the To Be a Yogi podcast. Today I'll be interviewing Matthew Remsky, author of Practice and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing in Yoga and Beyond. Matthew is also co-creator and co-host of Conspirituality Podcast, which examines the toxic ties between right-wing conspiracism and New Age utopianism. We will discuss cults and cult-like environments in the yoga community, as well as conspiracy theorism, the rejection of modern science and medicine, and the influence of QAnon in the yoga, New Age, and wellness communities. Just to give you a bit of background, I've been involved in the New Age and wellness communities for most of my life, if not all. If you're interested, I have another podcast called Esoteri Nerd. In episode one, I talk all about it. I was involved in a very time and energy demanding cult type group that was focused on spiritual and energetic healing, among other things, but coming from a more esoteric Christian hermetic point of view. In 2013, I left that group and started trying to find a way in which, on my own, I could pursue my spiritual path, but avoid any kind of cult-like environment. This led me to, in 2014, I went through my first yoga teacher training. At that time, I added a lot of Facebook friend-suggested yoga and New Age folk, thinking that it would be good to connect with others in this large, loosely-knit community of people focused more or less on similar things to what I was gravitating toward. One very positive thing that came out of this was becoming connected to my now-wife Priyal and settling here in India. By far, that positive outweighs the negative. By the negative, I refer to what I and I'm sure many of you have observed, which is that many of the more conspiracy-minded among the yoga New Age community have gravitated into a very weird place, which has culminated in being totally in alignment with the far-right anti-science rejection of all authority, i.e. medical professionals, which has now directly led or helped lead the U.S. to its current state of emergency, not to mention observing the pervasiveness of the popularity of QAnon among that community. I started to really wonder about how it came to be that way. I found a podcast called Rabbit Hole, which is a good one. It's more general, though, and was created by a journalist with the New York Times, so the folks that are already taken in by Conspirituality may already have a built-in inoculation to any of the good points Rabbit Hole may have, though, because of the source being part of the mainstream media, air quotes. Then I found Conspirituality Podcast, which focuses more directly and specifically on the phenomenon that I felt more concerned about. In Conspirituality Episode 5, they discuss how the phenomenon of being categorically opposed to modern medicine as a spiritual or religious context can in large part be traced back to Christian science. My paternal grandmother was Christian scientist, and my dad was raised to be a very good Christian scientist, and even went to uh, Principia, a Christian scientist college in New Jersey. 
Now, my dad and his mother were also into tarot cards and hermeticism and Eastern spirituality. So through that window, I can see how at least as far back as the 40s and 50s, there has been some contact between Christian science, the rejection of modern medicine, and people with what can be described as New Age or esoteric interests. So it isn't all QAnon, but when people today reject modern medicine, there's a pre-existing place where that point of view intersects with and is compatible with the New Age and wellness community. To complete the story, when my dad was 19, he was in a bad car crash, and being a good Christian scientist, he didn't go to a doctor about it. To do so would be to demonstrate doubt in one's faith in the healing power of Christ. He had had a concussion in the accident, and as a result, his left hand, his dominant hand, shook violently for the rest of his life. In the end, he left Christian science and became Buddhist, and while he continued to practice various forms of energetic and alternate healing, he also had respect for modern medicine and doctors and would see them if there was something serious going wrong and for checkups and all. I feel like I should mention this because I'm not speaking at the New Age and wellness communities, but rather, in a sense, from within it. I have also practiced Reiki and various forms of spiritual and energetic Rosicrucian healing. If I catch a cold, I may rely on one or more of these methods I've learned, whether it be a placebo or self-hypnosis or something more. Then if the cold gets worse, I might see a doctor about it. That's where I'm coming from. I think that if someone from outside points at the wellness community and says this and that, there may be a tendency for the person hearing it to feel defensive or attacked in some way. That's not what's happening, though. That's one thing I love about Conspirituality Podcast, is it's run by yoga teachers and specialists in mythology, and explores cult dynamics and this current trend of anti-mask, and the belief that Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates are conspiring to use 5G to put microchips in people, as that phenomenon seems to be merging with part of the yoga and wellness community. But I've droned on enough. Let's get to our interview. Shall we? Hello, How are Edward. You? How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. So thank you so much for uh, coming on here. I, I read you, the challenge that you posted, and uh, right. my uh, method that I've chosen uh, to distance myself from you know, misinformation that leads people away from healthy behavior is to interview you today and recommend oh, all right. everybody go listen to your podcast. Um, so uh, let's see, I'll get right to it. How did you first become drawn to yoga? It always feels like there's a personal story and then there's like a political context and and usually the the former is privileged over the latter. So I'll try to mix both together. Okay. Uh, I... I um, I took my first yoga class during a period of what I think was like an undiagnosed clinical depression that had something to do with being away from being alienated from my family at the time. It had something to do with not knowing what I was doing in my career and something to do also with um, being enmeshed with uh, the first of two cults that I was recruited into. Mm. And uh, so during that time, I was a student or I was a group member in the Asian Classics Institute and the teacher who's still doing his thing, uh, his name is Michael Roach. And 
Uh, he was heading off to a three-year retreat, uh, and um, I had this kind of mixture of uh, feeling abandoned, but also confused about what exactly I was involved in. And uh, all of the practices that I had been introduced to over the three years prior, uh, all were very um, both intellectual, but also contemplative in nature. And none of them had to do with, uh, you know, the principal values that I feel are, are central to postural yoga, like interoception or, you know, what, what the meaning of movement is or what breath feels like and stuff like that. So, mm. you know, there was, I was, I, I had, I had learned to meditate in a way, I guess. And, um, and I had learned, you know, a certain type of Tibetan philosophy that allowed me to dissociate myself from my emotions. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, uh, but, but I hadn't really, I don't know, um, reconciled myself with just the basic feeling of being okay. I hadn't encountered or asked the question of why don't I feel okay in my body. Um, mm. And so I went to a yoga class in, in, midtown manhattan just by chance it was we just picked a studio out of the village voice in the back uh and we went and i kind of had a i kind of had a um you know an epiphany uh as i rolled out of shavasana and i stared at my hand and i realized oh like i'm i'm here or i'm me i have agency i can choose to move in the way that i want to and and this was a real departure from both the Catholic upbringing that I'd uh, that I'd uh, been very much uh, enmeshed in, but then also this kind of indoctrination into the the Buddhist cult that I was part of. Mm. Uh, so that started that's you know that started me on uh, you know a kind of obsessive learning curve that you know brought me very quickly towards wanting to. Uh, do a teacher training. And this is where the political economy comes in. This was like, you know, 2000, 2001, and the yoga industry around the world, the English speaking world was just exploding with uh, trainings and, you know, intensive retreats and, you know, famous teachers starting to travel more visibly and yoga journal conferences and, you know, um, large yoga studios opening in, in major city centers and, and it, it was really at the sort of, um, you know, uh, riverhead of uh, an exploding industry uh, at that point. And, and it offered this sort of professional gateway in the form of the teacher training, the much maligned 200-hour training, teacher training that, uh, you know, became standard for a while and now is contested. But I like, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people uh, who were Gen X and younger um, and underemployed or freelance employed or not knowing what to do with our humanities degrees or, I mean, I didn't finish college at all because I got involved in cults. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> right. So, so, so I, um, you know, there was this there was this kind of pseudo professional doorway to enter into a growing industry that was creating itself in real time and um, and also it was it was just as 
urban gentrification in major city centers was starting to roll like a you know a runaway train and so yoga studios were popping up like mushrooms all over the place and in order to cover their overheads they were offering teacher training programs and so this was just becoming a thing and and it just you know it it seemed like a good thing to do at the time and i it's i don't regret it um i i ended up teaching for about you know 12 years or so and and I was like very active as a yoga community organizer and um, and I and I owned you know two different studios over that time period and and um, and I, I made and I made a living at it and I learned a fair amount about my um, my my body and what community meant and um, and what it didn't mean uh, and then uh, I also started to around 2012 or so started to wonder why um, there were so many people in my immediate sort of collegial surroundings that uh, start were were starting to be in chronic pain or uh, were starting to talk about yoga injuries or being adjusted in ways that sounded suspiciously like physical or sexual assault or, um, and, and I think that, that I had naively gotten into the yoga world thinking that, uh, it was somehow more open or less hierarchical or, or, um, you know, it had fewer strains of authoritarianism than than the cultic environments that I had been involved with before, and yeah. and that just wasn't yeah. true. That just wasn't true. Mm. Um, and so, uh, from about 2012 to now, I've I've kind of pivoted to um, like yoga education in and cultural studies, and I do a lot of um, journalism about, uh, yoga and Buddhist cultic dynamics and, uh, some of its investigative journalism. And, um, yeah, so, so I, I have gone from being, uh, a teacher of, of something that is aspirational and therapeutic to a kind of, uh, cultural critic of the same and 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 now there's lockdown and who knows and who knows yeah. what's going to happen next so so that's the arc so far i have ordered the uh practice and all is coming but it's going to be uh, a few more weeks before i get it uh, but i i really enjoy your posts on the subject and uh i i was telling a friend of mine he was asking so who's this uh person you're interviewing and I said, well, he's a little bit of a killer of Santa Claus, but in a good way. And he said, is there a bad way to be a killer of Santa Claus? <laughs> and that's, clarify- a great, that's a great, that's a, that's a great question. I think there is a bad way to be a mm. killer of Santa Claus. And I think I've been that at mm. various points. Um, and it has to do with the, like the recovery cycle when you've been involved in cultic groups that um, is difficult to navigate. Like uh, I, I, my, my, my personal, my personal story uh, involves, you know, having six years of my life really taken from me under deceptive uh, circumstances by yeah. two different groups, and there's, you know, and there's ways in which, and there's ways in which I, I take responsibility for my participation and my complicity. Uh, but the main thing that people don't understand about cultic dynamics is that nobody signs up for them. Um, 
nobody nobody joins a cult uh, as one of my favorite researchers says her name is Kathleen Mann she says uh, people delay leaving organizations that misrepresented themselves so um, you know the thing about the thing about uh, the, the the cultic organization is that it it lies to its members about what it's doing and that's why people uh, are recruited yeah. and and so you know the I can do I can do good work as a cult researcher and I can do less than good work as a cult researcher and that's where like I'm not only killing Santa Claus but like I'm hanging him in effigy and and <laughs> you know I don't know spray painting his corpse and whatever yeah, it's like yeah. it's, it needs it's, to be a fair trial right there needs to be there needs to be and and a, and there needs to be a fair trial but also a little bit of uh, distance and uh, a bit of nurturing of yeah. you know the the um the 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 personal wounds that are both driving your research but also allow you to give you insight into it right so yeah so it's a it's a bit of a fine line like i don't think i could have written uh the the book about uh patabi joyce that i wrote without having been a cult survivor myself because i think that really allowed me to listen to my um, my interview subjects in a way that was particular to that to that context and yeah. and you know that 's not something that we get typically in uh, journalism uh, right. today uh, it 's not you know and and i think I think one of the things that the me too era really highlights about that is that um, uh, the the really good journalistic work that is done on people like Weinstein or or Cosby or Larry Nasser, um, usually it it takes a while for it to filter into the publications that oh, you know the the other story going on here is that the violence of these perpetrators is actually networked and it's much more complex than talking about like one sociopath. Uh, we're also talking about, you know, uh, entire entire organizations that are responsible for institutional abuse. And so, um, uh, if you're if you're a cult survivor, you know that there's a machine involved yeah. in the whatever abuse is happening. That it's not about one bad person and one gullible victim or several gullible victims. It's about it's about uh, you know a real sort of ecosystem in which. Uh, abuse is normalized and justified and even spiritualized. So, um, so yeah. Uh, but but you know if 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 you really if you really feel that in your bones as you as you research, you're gonna you might you might turn out some some angry stuff that that forecloses the ability for people to to take responsibility or that forecloses on the ability for people to forgive or that forecloses on the ability for people to heal because as the researcher you're not you're working out your own healing and that's not that's not ideal so yeah. um yeah there are good and bad ways to 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 kill santa and sometimes there's the process of taking responsibility for having participated in the ecosystem at the same time as healing from being a victim of it Oh, that makes it very complicated. And I think everybody who, most people who, who have been uh, members of high demand groups have to negotiate that. Um, and uh, it's because, you know, the, the, the ecosystem of the, of the cult really, um, it works because 
if you're not directly targeted by the abuse, there's probably some kind of social advantage that you're accruing at the same time. And, and, uh, and, and that, and that's really, that's really difficult. One, you know, one of, one of my, one of, one of my, um, I would say she's a friend and a colleague now, but uh, I met her because I was interviewing her about her experience with with Patabi Joyce, uh, Karen Rain, who's become an amazing activist against abuse and yoga. Um, she uh, she very early on in her outspokenness. Um, this would be several months after she made her Me Too statement in November of 2017. She came out on Facebook and she said, "You know." Uh, I participated in this group by glorifying Patabi Joyce, and I also know that I injured people by adjusting them in the way that he taught me to adjust them. I'm really sorry about this. I wish I hadn't had done it, hadn't done it, but I need to take responsibility for it. She she came out she came out and confessed to injuring people, uh, and and um, and she folded that into her recovery and survivorship. Uh, narrative in a way that was that was really really inspiring, and uh, yeah, I think everybody everybody who's involved in groups like that has to really recognize that that um, intentionally or not, under undue influence or not, they would have participated in the 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 ecosystem that that perpetuated abuse, and that's really hard to do. Yeah, what experiences have you personally had? with cults and cult-like environments in the yoga community? Uh, well, in, in the yoga world, it's mostly been peripheral because I, I never really belonged to a group. I mean, the closest that I got was um, I studied fairly uh, intensively with a number of Iyengar teachers, including a senior Iyengar teacher named Ramanan Patel, who came to uh, Ontario, to a little studio in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, this would have been in like 2006 through 2009, something like that. And uh, I went to his intensives for that period of time. And, and I really enjoyed his, you know, straightforwardness and the fact that he was an ex-engineer and that he had, you know, he, he was gruff and, uh you know, he was also pragmatic and he was Indian and, and um, he had a great sense of humor and uh, well, not really, but, but he, <laughs> but he, but he, uh, he was sardonic actually mm. is what he was. He, he was kind of grumpy and he knew he was grumpy and, but he also, he also had the, um, you know, he, he, he carried with him the training that he had received from Mr. Iyengar, who physically assaulted his students on a daily basis. And, and so his adjustments, uh, you know, there was no such thing as consent. Uh, there was no warning. There was no informed consent. There was no, I'm going to do this because I believe right. for these reasons that you need it. There was nothing like that. There was no yeah. conversation with a student. The, 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 the premise was, an environment that I've described with the term somatic dominance, which is the body of the teacher has power over the body of the student. And, and that's just the rule when you walk into the room. And I believe that that's the rule that's governed modern yoga and to some extent, modern Buddhism, mm-hmm. global Buddhism for the last hundred right. years. Yeah. And, yeah. and so he, um, he, yeah, he, he came very close to, I would say, 
uh, catastrophically injuring my spine in one adjustment uh, that was, you know, unannounced. I didn't know why he was doing it. Uh, but it also uh, created, there was this moment in which I had the very disconcerting response of hoping that he would do it to me again uh, and realizing that and realizing years later that that was the sort of, those are the mechanics of trauma bonding that when somebody hurts you in a certain like dynamic of social power and you interpret that as a form of attention or love uh, and you do that unconsciously, you do that in your body before you're even aware that you're doing it. Um, that is, that's the, those are the nuts and bolts of the trauma bond that would keep you coming back to that teacher in an unhealthy relationship uh, for, you know, however long uh, you could tolerate it. And so that's as close as I got. And it's, you know, and I do want to say, I, I, I do want to say that probably eight or nine years after that event, I was able to sit down with Ramanan Patel in a Whole Foods cafeteria in California, north of San Francisco, and tell him about this and interview him about it and say, you know, you did this thing to me. What was going on for you? And, and you know, what's, you know, what do you have to say about it? And to his credit, he sat there and he said, you know, I'm very sorry that I injured you. Uh, and the problem is that I was simply doing what I was taught to do, but I didn't have, oh, but this was his caveat. He said, I didn't have Mr. Iyengar's wisdom to do it properly, right? So that's where he kind of let himself off the hook, but he also apologized. It was like, it wasn't that, it wasn't that he learned a culture of physical assault. It's that he was trying to do something mystical that his mentor was only able to do and he didn't have the magical gift to do it. So right. um, it, was in, it was a really interesting, like I understood that for him to go farther and to say, oh yeah, I... I learned how to physically assault students because that's what my teacher did. That would be another like quantum leap forward in terms of him understanding what he was doing. He yeah. really had yeah. to, he really had to maintain his belief, I think in uh, Iyengar's, um, you know, magic, his, his, his miraculous power. And, you know, for some people that's still true and, and it still would justify whatever, whatever it was, however he yoinked on them. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was, that was a really, it was a really, uh, it was a great conversation and, and, you know, everything that I liked about him from 10 years before, uh, just all rushed back with a little bit more. He was older. He was, um, he was humble in the conversation. He listened to me carefully. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, He's, he's, I remember we parted. He said, well, I'm very sorry that I injured you, but part of me is happy because otherwise I wouldn't have met you today. Hmm. And it was just this like very Indian karmic thing to say, you know, right. and I, I appreciated it and, and, it, and, it, and it felt good. But yeah, so that was, that was the closest I got to uh, the, the being enmeshed in the cultic dynamism of the Iyengar world. Um, but otherwise I was fairly independent in yoga. And so when, you know, I first really started digging into cultic dynamics in yoga, it was as, as an outsider right. and it was as somebody who, like I knew, um, people, uh, I had very good friends who had been in Ashtanga yoga for a long time. And so I understood what they were going through a little bit and what the dynamics were. Uh, and yeah, then from, then from there, uh, my, my 
my interests and and my sort of like you know journalism threads uh, spun out from that so yeah um I, I went to, I guess the, the last big pieces that I did were on uh, the Shivananda yoga world. And, uh, and yeah. And then otherwise, otherwise I've got a piece coming out uh, soon in the walrus on um, the Shambhala international community and uh, it's intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Uh, and um yeah, so I, I think it's been I think it's been a little bit easier for me to uh, engage with abuse in the yoga world because I wasn't that enmeshed in it. Like it's been right. easier for me to have some distance. But I tell you, when I when I interview people from from Buddhist communities, like I get I get triggered. I get physically like mm. I remember. I just remember what it was like to be overwhelmed by the beauty and the austerity of this philosophy being delivered by people who really hadn't sorted out their control issues. So, um, yeah. Yeah. There's that old fashioned guru disciple dynamic, very old fashioned where you're not supposed to question anything and you're supposed to do everything they say. And that dynamic isn't so good itself, but, when it you know when it does exist then there's an extreme amount of responsibility on the part of yeah the well i i mean maybe this it. is a question maybe this is a question for you i know you're in india right now mm. i don't know how long how 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 much time you spend there how long you've been there but i mean my my feeling at this point is that uh, the the guru shishya model is just misapplied in most modern transnational contexts yeah. uh, because because it's it's blown up to a scale in which there can't be any interpersonal responsibility right like almost everybody who uh, is at the center of modern yoga and Buddhist organizations that have that display cultic dynamics. Uh, are really at the center of multinational corporations in which yeah. they have limited or just symbolic contact with thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. And my understanding from, from just the anthropology of it is that in pre-modern terms, the, the Guru Shishya context uh, is you know, really, uh, it's, it's familial, it's based in, in the, the pundits or the, or the guru's household, you know, they, they would never have more than a dozen students at a time. Uh, and, and they would be referred, they would be referred to the teacher by their families or by their, or, or, you know, through the temple or something like that. And so there'd be this social matrix in which, um, that that learning that that learning environment would be held, but also held held responsible. Yeah. Uh, and none of none of that exists in Iyengar yoga. None of that exists in Ashtanga yoga. Like people call Patabi Joyce, or Bikram. Yeah, people call Patabi Joyce uh, guru, and it's t- totally bizarre because he doesn't know their fucking names. Like like what it doesn't. It didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense that that they would that they would assume that he was going to take any kind of spiritual responsibility for them. And 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 either they were propagandized by senior students into calling him that, or they were naive in some way and and they had some weird, overly romanticized impression of of how to behave in Indian contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
yeah, but but I I don't think I don't I don't think um, any of these people are are, are gurus. I mean, they're they're right. disqualified from guruship by behavior. Yeah. Uh, but but it seems that structurally they're disqualified just in terms of scale, right? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think there's something to that. Although I can think of one or two exceptions, like uh, in Sikhism, they of course use the term guru for the, uh, the you know the the ten gurus, the tenth one being their sacred book. Um, right, right, and, right. And, yeah. and of course, there were thousands of followers in in you know in the days of those nine living gurus, and I'm sure they wouldn't have known their names. I mean, so I can think of things like that. But you're right in terms of uh, traditional yoga before kind of the uh, explosion into the international, you know, uh, community. I think that, it, I mean, I'm sure you know uh, the yamas and the niyamas. Um, right. I, I, uh, I've been lucky enough, like you said, um, you know, my, my cultural experience was not in yoga either. Um, but I've kind of observed a little bit sometimes when I'm talking to someone and I go, hmm, that's a little odd, you know. Uh, but the schools that I've uh, been trained in were smaller schools that were aware of the abusive uh, aspects of these, you know, uh, controversial schools. And uh, they and that would be something that we would talk about. And there was never it would just wasn't like that. I mean, I, right. for, fortunately, and right. uh, and there's the way that they teach it is that you know no i i i don't necessarily i mean it's i i'm uh the reason i'm stuttering is because on one hand i don't want to name names but on the other hand yes i do you know we gotta right, name right. the names yeah. you know yeah the, um, the struggle the struggle is real yeah um the people like patabi joyce and bikram and so on uh they don't stick to the yamas and the niyamas and if they think that they're sticking to them, they, they're rationalizing t t way, way out from uh, what is reasonable for an interpretation of them. Um, they're, they're getting hung up on their, you know, uh, parigraha, you know, they're getting hung up on uh, lust and, and uh, lust for, you know, attachment right, to right, material right. wealth. And the, the dazzling, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's like a, the temptation of fame you know, get, get going from being a popular, studly, you know, uh, yoga teacher to suddenly being internationally famous and able to rake in millions of dollars. I have not, I, I don't really want to be tempted by that demon. You know, um, I, I, I've never been in that situation. So I really don't know how I would behave if suddenly I had, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people calling me guru. I don't think I would like that. But I, I think that something in the human soul, you know, or, or uh, mind or psyche, because there's a whole, there's a, there's a dynamic, there's the, uh, you know, I mean, I've heard you talk about how you don't like to speculate too much about what's going on inside the psychology of the cult leaders, but there, right. it, it, it's like a double, it's a, there's a poison on both ends. Like the cult leader isn't getting anything good out of it either. Uh, they're, they're addicted probably more than any of their followers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, per, perhaps they're also, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, per, perhaps. I, I, I definitely think there's like, there can be social feedback mechanisms of approval and, and capital building that just seem to be working as well. And, yeah. and, and there, there can be an addictive quality to that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, 
the 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 gaining of followers ends up becoming a kind of social proof for the power of the message and that can right. lead the person to believe that their that their transcendental ideology is actually really working or it's valid right right yeah. um oh i just want to point out just because i always do is that is that um i i try to i try to the i try i try using the the phrase high on their own supply instead of drinking Kool-Aid because, because the people who, the people who the Kool-Aid comment refers to were, were murdered with Kool-Aid or not Kool-Aid, but like, anyway, so anyway, I just point that out. I'm not criticizing. Yeah, no, I understand. Like flag that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, there, there have been some, um, studies that i'm aware of that are that are both compelling but at the same time poetic and speculative on what's going on inside the charismatic leader and one of them comes from len oaks uh, in a book called um, prophetic charisma and he describes that you know of the I don't know, dozen or 15 or so um, cult leaders that he was able to actually interview. I don't know how he did that, but he, um, he, he put together a schema of uh, like a narrative of how they come to be who they are. Um, and there's, there's five points that involve kind of like an early awakening and then a period of isolation and then a period of ministry and then a crisis point and then a crucifixion slash fall. Mm. Uh, and, um, and so that's kind of interesting. I think, I think going more into depth psychoanalytically, we have Dan Shaw's traumatic narcissism. Uh, where he describes the inner life of the charismatic leader in a very compelling way, but also in a way that just can't be verified because none of these right. people go to therapy. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and, and like, let, let me give an example from my, from my sort of immediate personal surroundings uh, mm-hmm. of somebody who was a charismatic leader who um, I, I wouldn't say that he became a, he became a cult leader, although there were cultic dynamics that surrounded him. Uh, and, and I think he was um, transparent enough to, to start to look at that uh, with, within himself and, his, and, and what had gathered around him. But uh, I'm talking about my late friend, Michael Stone, uh, who uh, I knew for years here in Toronto, and, and he was incredibly... Uh, charismatic and engaging and and the thing that people didn't know until he died um, of uh, uh, fentanyl poisoning uh, and we're not quite sure about the intentionality of that uh, but he uh, died in 2016 at the age of 46, 45 I can't remember I mean very young and incredibly tragic uh, and left, you know, his partner and three children behind. Uh, and he, but he had an international teaching career where he was on the road a significant part of each year. Uh, people adored his his podcasts and his talks and his books. And, and um, you know, he was just an amazing kind of um, explicator of modern Buddhism and yoga. And what people didn't know uh, was that he'd also struggled with um, the uh, 
bipolar diagnosis for it's it's unclear how many years um but you know he told me about it uh in uh, about 2015 or maybe a little bit before uh and 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 i realized once i understood that 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 um his his passion for buddhism especially and his passion for its orderliness um and his incredible like um drive to make um, its concepts and its gifts accessible to people was was very much sort of related i believe uh, this is my opinion very much related to his need for those things to self-regulate himself right mm -hmm. it's it's like he was he was i think he was a very classic example of somebody who's teaching people what he needed to learn and what he needed to do and what he maybe wasn't able to do ultimately and right. and because and because he wasn't able to do it ultimately because he struggled so profoundly that's what made his promotion of those uh, ideas and that poetry so incandescent like so on fire with like um uh, a kind of uh, urgency. It's like he really needed this Zen Buddhism, for example, to answer a certain type of anxiety uh, within him. And and because and be and because he was so devoted to that, uh, that was part of the attraction. People could see that and feel that. And and. And um, it's almost like it's incredibly a beautiful, uh, tragic, also ironic story that I think people were attracted to him because they thought he had his life put together when it was actually the other way around, uh, that, that people were attracted to him because he was struggling and he was using this material with his struggle. And, um, and so I just... And, and so I, I bring him up as, as sort of the closest example that I have of, of somebody who had a charismatic presence in the world uh, and who had a large following. Uh, and because it's, it's the only real insight I have into somebody who's been in that position and, and what things might like, might have been like for them internally. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and so I, I have to imagine that uh, there's a lot of these people who a lot of these leaders who have intense internal conflicts that they're trying to resolve and their attempts to resolve them uh, produce a kind of content uh, uh, that, that is soaked in the kind of spirituality that they wish they could attain. And so, so um, you know, and, and like, uh, it's so clear when, you know, you when I study people like now, these are totally different people, uh, and I'm not comparing my friend Michael with somebody like Kutan Nair, uh, also known as uh, Swami um, Vishnu Devananda of Shivananda Yoga. But but like his whole thing, his whole um, pitch to the yoga world was health, self-regulation, um, you know, clean living vegetarian diet, uh, doing your practice at regular times every day. And this guy was a fucking basket case behaviorally. Like mm. he 
was he was up all night. He was he could never be alone. Uh, he never he never sat and like meditated on his own because he couldn't stand to be alone. Uh, he didn't do the things that he told everybody else to do. Right. And it's almost as if the people who were around him, um, you know, were providing this image of tranquility that he couldn't himself embody. The same damn story is true of Chogyam Trungpa. The guy was a complete and utter domestic disaster, like setting aside his sexual abuse of like countless students, setting aside the, the chaos of his inner circle. This is somebody who like did not know what day of the week it was, somebody who could not keep track of how much he was drinking or how much cocaine he was taking. This is somebody who just... He, and, and, and what did he do? Uh, he encouraged people to sit still and calmly and look inside and find their basic goodness. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and every, every bone in my body is saying he probably wishes he could have done just a little bit of that. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he did. I don't think he could. Um, you know, and, and I just also, let me just cap that rant off by saying that like, <laughs> Uh, speaking a little bit too much about these people uh, going too far into it has the problem of, you know, uh, invoking, um, turning attention to them that just is in some ways an extension of the original problem. You know, it's like, uh, I don't like to speculate on what's going on inside these people because, you know, you can't know for sure, but also because, it often can draw attention away from the facts of institutional abuse and what yeah. survivors are actually saying about what they went through when they were in these groups. So uh, I just want to, just want to throw that into. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, uh, the old uh, Stockholm syndrome where the, the victim is like, well, but you know, you don't understand his heart. It's like, well, Absolutely, because and that's an extension of what of of the original propaganda that values the leader's life over the follower's life, and yeah. or and and somehow suggests and somehow suggests that you know the leader is this special person who has extraordinary skills or abilities and should be allowed to get away with whatever. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about, I, I, I think we did, I, there's no real resolution we can reach with talking about uh, cults, but I, I have a question later on that's, uh, you know, about avoiding them and things like that. But for yeah, now, because for now, there is some, there are, there are some things we can say about that. Yeah, sure. yeah. I, I don't think it's all, it's not, it's not all, it's not all doom and gloom with regard right. to, to, to yoga and Buddhism culture. But for um, now getting a, a little bit to a little bit of a nuance, um, what is conspirituality? First, the concept, and then the podcast. Conspirituality was first sort of put into the public domain by a Vancouver rap group in about 2009. And they used uh, kind of tropes about 9-11 and the Illuminati and you know a bunch of other things to speak about to, to produce the affect of a kind of political awakening, you know, it's like wake up to what's going on around you, et cetera. Right. And, and, but it's, it's not like, I don't, I don't get like a strong uh, political or, or intellectual 
thread from from the group's work. I haven't listened to everything, but um, as a as a as a term, it comes into academic research through a couple of uh, sociologists or their religious studies scholars, uh, Charlotte um, Ward and David Voss. They publish a paper in 2011 called The Emergence of Conspirituality. And the abstract of that paper, uh, we can just put in the show notes because it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, they describe uh, the uh, convergence of two social movements and affects. On one hand, uh, there is uh, the politically right-wing, often male-identified, uh, often libertarian in sentiment um, uh, proponents of various conspiracy theories that criticize uh, you know, any collective idea or any idea of the common good as being, you know, a mode of social control. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the government's trying to control us. The government's trying to take our guns. The gov government's trying to suppress our free speech. The government is right. run by Jews in Hollywood. The government George is... Soros. Yeah, exactly. George Soros. All right. So there's that. Now, that's usually... That's dominated by men on Reddit and 4chan and 8kun. And it's, and it's coming from the right... Uh, and it is converging with the aspirations of New Age wellness culture, uh, often coming from the left, uh, that takes the sort of um, the, the, the specter of any social crisis and suggests that it's an opportunity for spiritual transformation. Right. So, so, so there's two political and demographic threads that come together and kind of defy political categorization hmm. uh, and end up being sort of uh, embodied in the presentation of somebody like uh, Dr. Christiane Northrup, who right. has 500,000 followers on Facebook and, and, you know, for 25 years, she has worked in, I would say, the dual fields of alternative women's health, but also um, uh, women's centered clinical health, uh, and has argued, for instance, for lowering intrusive birthing interventions, uh, arguing against or protesting against the practice of male circumcision, um, speaking about, uh, you know, women's ability and necessity to resist what she calls medical patriarchy. Uh, and she has this progressive, um, you know, you know, a feminist seeming uh, outlook that has governed her service to women's healthcare over the past 25 years. Now, since April, she's been on Facebook almost every day, uh, publishing selfie video sermons uh, that go into a series called The Great Awakening, which happens to be a tagline used by uh, the QAnon conspiracy movement. Uh, and what she's doing is she is um, bizarrely suggesting that uh, COVID-19 is a hoax, that, um, you know, just as 
mainstream OBGYNs advocate for taking away women's power during birthing situations, so too do the epidemiologists take away citizens' rights by telling them to, to wear masks, right? She, she conflates these two things, right? So there's this personal freedom argument at the heart of her uh, medical work, but then it gets uh, expanded and and kind of scaled up to the level of public health, where suddenly, without any epidemiological training, she's making pronouncements about how you know Tony Fauci is getting everything wrong. And but but it's all clothed within the premise of the Great Awakening, which is an opportunity to transcend both medical patriarchy, but also the American deep state government and to evolve into 5D angel creatures uh, and so on. So, so yeah. it's, there's, there's, this, there's this push and pull in a figure like that. Uh, and, and she's really, you know, she's a good example of the conspiritualist movement because on one hand she offers the sort of terror and paranoia of conspiracism. And on the other hand, she offers the utopianism of, and the promise, the transcendental promise of the new age. And she goes back and forth. So one thing that conspirituality does is it, is it whipsaws, uh, you know, back and forth between scaring the shit out of people and then offering them heaven, mm -hmm. scaring the crap out of people, offering them, you know, eternal life or higher vibrations or 5D, you know, unicorn Disneyland. And so we have um, this really compelling, interesting back and forth that actually uh, is connected with the cult dynamics that I study in yoga and Buddhist groups because charismatic leaders will do the same thing. They will go back and forth between scaring people and loving them or, or offering love to them. Uh, and, you know, if you read the work of Alexandra Stein on disorganized attachment in cults, then, you know, you, 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 people, people will be familiar with this as being a primary function of the cultic environment, which is to destabilize the person uh, through this oscillation between terror and love so that trauma bonds are created. Um, because, because the leader ends up being this figure who's both prophesying the end of the world, but also offering a gateway out of it. And so they become the focus of your attention instead of, okay, well, here are the public health advisories for today. We should wear masks inside the grocery store, right? Which is a lot more boring and a lot more, um, you know, kind of, it's not, it's not sexy, um, I listen, right? I listen to- Plus there, there's it's this, the government telling me what right, to do. Right, plus it's the government. And plus yeah. It's the, yeah, so one thing, one thing that conspirituality offers is like immersive emotional fireworks. Uh, and and uh, that's not what the N, what the what the NHS is offering. That's not what you know Health Canada is offering in their in their Twitter feed. Um, you know, I I we've got a we've got a an interview coming up with uh, Imran Ahmed, who runs the Center for Combating Online Hate or digital hate in the UK. And, and he, he's the one who, his group just published the study that showed uh, that um, conspirituality groups or anti, sorry, anti-vax groups spent 
have spent $1 billion on advertising on social media platforms since the lockdown began. Uh, and so he, and he, he made the point, which is that, you know, nobody retweets the NHS. That would be like a really nerdy thing to do. And I realized, oh yeah, I've never shared a post from, you know, Health Toronto or from the public health officer in Ontario um, about, you know, where exactly we should wear masks because that's just not as engaging as, you know, even bitching about Christiane Northrup. So, so we've got this real problem where, where conspirituality is, is, is intensely emotionally engaging uh, and public health data just isn't. Yeah, that was uh, mostly the concept of conspirituality, but can you tell me a little bit about the, the podcast? Yeah, um, I was just lucky to to reconnect with um, two friends that that I've known for about ten years uh, out in California, Julian Mark Walker, and then Derek Barris. Derek has a has a podcast that he's been running for uh, a good amount of time called Earthrise Soundcast, I think, and he invited us both on to talk about. Um, uh, conspirituality and and I think we spent in that first episode a fair amount of time talking about Kelly Brogan who's a, a quote-unquote holistic psychiatrist who is married to Sayer G who's the owner of um, the founder of Green Med Info which is one of the top anti-vax sites on the internet mm. uh, and she has she has migrated slowly away from clinical psychiatry practice and into uh, full-on content production in the sort of COVID denialism movement, um, and so uh, we were talking about we were talking about her and and the attractiveness of her message and how confusing it was and and uh, I think that conversation went well enough that we just decided to do our own thing and yeah. and uh, now I think we're about nine or ten episodes in. It's going. I think it's going pretty well. Um, and we've we've had really good feedback so far. We didn't know how much content we would have to deal with, but mm. we're totally overwhelmed. Actually, yeah. we get we get probably four or five leads per day. Have you checked out these people? What's going on with this guy? Uh, how influential is this? How do you understand that? So. You know, it's not like we're, it's not like we're, we're reaching uh, ex expert and we're not reaching, we're not trying to dig for anything and we're yeah. certainly not experts in any of this, but, but there's certainly rich reporting that we can do on a, on a daily basis. Just, it's just a matter of like, you know, figuring out, figuring out how much time we have and, and, you know how how the three of us are you know gonna right. <laughs> ma make money or spend you know it's it's we're trying to you know two of us two of us have young children um and you know we're all in lockdown and i think one of us our the partner is is uh about to have you know the ui cut um and so yeah we're we we i think we feel dedicated to this reporting, which I don't think anybody else is really doing, but um, uh, we also, I think it's a very volatile environment. And so I, 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 I can't, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure where it's going to go. I, I would love, I would love to be able to uh, commit even more time to it, but, but uh, the resources would have to be there for that. Right. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, whoever's listening to us talking right now after this episode, they'll 
search on whatever podcasting platform they use. It's just uh, the Conspirituality podcast, right? That's it, yeah. Okay. I, I wanted to uh, backtrack a little bit. The Great Awakening, there was a 19th century one, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, a couple of them, in fact. Um, I'm not so familiar with the, uh, with the religious history there, but as I understand, uh, they were both um, evangelical reform movements, uh, both, I think there was a couple of them, maybe even three, uh, and um, they, uh, I think they had links to, um, to uh, white nationalist or white uh, supremacist movements at the time, as well as in the Great Awakening to, you know, our, you know, nationalist identity or yeah. our, our yeah. cultural identity. Uh, so yeah, these, the, the phrase itself goes back in American history uh, and it has a revivalist uh, feeling to it, but um, you know, it's, it's been used since at least 2018 um, and perhaps even before uh, by the QAnon group in sort of the dark armpits of the internet to describe mm -hmm. their idea about how um, Trump is a messianic figure that has masterfully orchestrated a way to be able to um, to, to uh, unravel and depose the deep state that is controlling, um, you know, people, but also farming, you know, the bodily substances of abused children in right, underground right. bunkers. So, so there's, I mean, QAnon is an incredible mixture of um, like, medieval level uh, conspiracism and political intrigue and, uh, you know, magical thinking and catastrophizing and paranoia. Uh, and yeah, like when I started reporting on Christiane Northrup, I didn't have, you know, really solid evidence that, that she was, she was hitching her star to that uh, particular movement. But, um, it became more and more clear as she tweeted, I don't know how many it is now, but I, I was able to report at least two shares of full-on QAnon uh, content through Twitter that she was able to, that she was, that, that she had put onto her platforms uh, during the time that I was reporting. Uh, and, you know, it's like, I can't say that she is fully red-pilled as a QAnon devotee, but I can say that, uh, you know, she has expressed support for or affinity with with the group. And this is just such a bizarre um, uh, conflation of of impulses that also like it does, in my opinion, real damage to uh, something that has been so promising over the last three years, which is the elevation of the survivor's voice and um, and and uh, and and their capacity to be platformed uh, coming out of the Me Too movement. Yeah. Um, so so you know one of the things one of the things that's being pulled on or being manipulated, I would say, is the premise that you know the person who describes, especially the woman who describes sexual assault, 
and especially the person who describes uh, abuse in earlier years in life, the person is to be believed and supported because as we know, the number of false accusations of sexual assault or child abuse are actually um, you know, vanishingly low. Uh, I don't think that's true of, of, of reports of child abuse. So let me walk that back. I do know that there's something like 4% of accusations of sexual assault uh, turn, out to be, turn out to be unfounded or uncorroborated. And so the vast majority of people who describe um, their survivorship are not making it up. They're not right. exaggerating. They have to be believed. And so, and so, um, what happens when, you know, anti-abortion rights, uh, alt-right, um, you know, uh, survivalist medical libertarians start capitalizing on the cultural capital of the Me Too movement by suggesting that, uh, oh, yeah, well, of course, there are pedophile rings and, you know, we must believe that this is happening because right. people don't lie about it when actually, you know, just as with the, you know, satanic ritual abuse years back in the 90s, we really don't have any forensic evidence for it. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's this very, very ugly way I feel that the survivorship of the Me Too movement is being um, mobilized uh, for um, uh, a fiction, really, uh, yeah. that that is that is expressing that is expressing some deep cultural anxieties and should mm -hmm. be respected as such. But it's like you know, QAnon is going farther than that, right? They're 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 you know they're they're instigating acts of violence in the public sphere now. So. Um, yeah, big, big very, very, very confusing. Weird. Yeah, very, yeah, and 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 the and the great awakening. Just just to come back to the great awakening, yeah. the premise there is that the the premise there is that is that once everything is revealed, when there's been enough Q drops, and when you know when the the Clintons have been arrested and taken off to Gitmo or whatever, that uh, we will we will understand when when there's been mass arrests of every pedophile in hollywood which is basically everybody uh then we will understand that you know the the world can be redeemed or you know we'll we'll enjoy the freedom that we've never had uh and so that's the that's the 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 aspirational part of the great awakening right. um and and uh yeah very very confusing and and it's like there's a lot of people who are attracted to these messianic wellness influencers that um, are not only survivors of institutional abuse themselves, but in some cases, they, you know, they will be mentally or emotionally vulnerable, not only because of lockdown, but because, you know, they might be attracted to the wellness influencer because they have had bad experiences in conventional medicine, for example. Um, so, so my, what I really you know, try to do uh, with this podcast project is to um, speak in uh, and to research in defense of vulnerable people whose um, experiences are being mobilized against them for, um, you know, somebody's anti-vax or anti-mask agenda. It seems like there's just so many parallels with, uh, with that evangelical uh, you know, uh, formula, I guess, or uh, 
design like the it's a, it sounds a little bit like book of revelation like if you understand the these sort of nostradamus you know uh poet po poetic drops in the book of revelation or in QAnon, then you'll understand right. how it's all going to come down but it's okay because chapter 22 the you know the cube comes down and everything and then uh you know the the fear and the love you're going to burn in hell but you know, like, it, it, but God loves you like that, that, and the, the charismatic leader, it's, it's like, it's exactly the same, I, I dare say monster, but it's uh, mutated. Like, a yeah, it's, and it's <laughs> monster is a good, yeah, monster is a good word. It's chaotic. It's yeah. chaotic. And, and, and it's chaotic in a way that I think actually resonates with and, and, um, and exploits human anxiety. Uh, you know, it's like, for me, uh, what, is, what is calming, if not reassuring, is listening to somebody uh, in the Toronto Department of Public Health give a press conference in which they lay out the research that they have they say what they don't know. They explain what they don't know. Uh, they uh, issue their concerns, and then they issue their best practices based upon the research that they and their team has done. And I know that they're standing there because I've paid property tax or I've paid sales tax on this or that. There's something about that that makes sense. And of course, all of these systems are vulnerable to corruption, mm. but... But it's just like it's 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 beyond paranoid to believe that, you know, the person who dedicates themselves to public health is 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 there to make stuff up or to play upon your emotions. And and that's what I don't want. I have enough trouble with my anxiety, with my melancholy, with my depression as as it stands, I don't need that to be transformed or played upon or exploited or amplified or, or explored by any charismatic figure. Like that's not going to help me love the people around me. Clearly it's not going to help me make, you know, intelligent decisions. It's not going to help me, um, you know, communicate clearly with the people that I need to communicate clearly with. It's, it's, it's just going to rev me up and I don't want that kind of junk food. It's not, yeah. it's, it's not cathartic. It's not, it is, it's the catharsis is fake. Uh, it's not, it's not fulfilling. And so, and so there's a, there's a, there's also something here about recognizing that the charismatic leader offers you a kind of junk food, uh, emotional junk food, that is yeah. not uh, that is explosive and epiphanic and it feels revelatory uh, but it's its own product it doesn't resolve anything except uh, to create a need for you to get it the next day and that's not that just doesn't it just doesn't help and you know it's like real and and, and just as above so below like like real psychological work in my experience is a long, slow, sometimes boring, and like 
um, tedious. Uh, uh, tedious, yeah, tedious, tedious process where where um, you know there are rarely uh, there there are moments of clarity and and insight, uh, but nothing is ever nothing is ever uh, final or, or formalized or locked away. Uh, It just, that just doesn't, it, that's just not how it, that's just not how it works. And so, um, you know, it's like, I, I, I just really resist and I, and I resent the, the, the emotional manipulation of conspirituality because it says, you know, you can understand everything right now if you commit to my intrusive eye contact. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sing song, tone of voice, and soundtrack. Right. There's all, yeah. Oh, yeah. We could, yeah. We could talk for another hour about all the techniques, too. Because mm. <clears throat> they're so, pretty standard, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess uh, we already, t- like, before we touched upon this, but uh, how, how have you observed cult dynamics? specifically operating in the world of conspirituality? Um, I think, I think I, I see it most in the, I I mean, it's okay. So, so here's, here's the big challenge for cult theory. Um, All cult, cultic studies uh, is, I would say, or most of it at this point is analog and we're trying to apply it to a digital world. Right. Um, and it grows up in a, it grows up in a time in which uh, residential ashrams and, you know, intensive retreats and in-person contact is kind of like the compound. It's yeah. The B it's the B it provides the behavioral structure for control. Yeah. And none of that, none of that exists online in the same way. And so, and so I think what we, we have to now answer is like, what are the groups that are going to be able to facilitate or, or that are going to be able to make this switch over into the digital space in an efficient way? Like how, how's that going to work? Right. And, um, and so I think that remains to be seen. And everybody that I'm studying right now in conspirituality, I'm not studying as like a, an in-person group leader. I'm studying as, a, as an internet persona. And so I can't really say how the dynamics are evolving in, 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 in the flesh sociologically, but, but I can say that there are overleaps, overlaps in the, in the technique. And, and one of them, I think the best example so far is that the day after Mickey Willis put out the pandemic documentary featuring Judy Mikovits, uh, that was May 5th. And I think on May 6th, he went onto Facebook live and he gave this selfie sermon where he gazed into the camera with his blue eyes. And he said, you know, I know everybody's going through a great difficult transformation right now, but I'm here with you. And I want you to know that, you know, I'm not afraid to die, uh, that this is the time for us to wake up and blah, blah, blah. He just like, it was like a total word salad, like emotionally manipulative. I don't know what it was, but it was designed to provide the love delivery 
after the terror of the documentary. And so when I see somebody flipping back and forth between here's my documentary that will tell you that will claim that COVID-19 was actually planned by an evil cabal. Uh, so I'm going to release that on May 5th. And then on May 6th, I'm going to tell you how much I love you right. and how much we're going to get through that together. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, that's like classic charismatic leader 101. Yeah. It's like, it's like, there's just no mistaking that, that pattern. And, and, you know, it's exactly what the charismatic leader in the 1970s, you know, it's, it's no, it's in structure. It's exactly what Jim Jones does, which is, which is here's, here's how the government is prosecuting us and persecuting our religion and how they're going to ruin our lives and come after us and kill us uh, on one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, here's how we demonstrate our spiritual liberation uh, through murder, mass suicide. And, and um, so we've got this, we've got this, I'm not saying Mickey Willis is going to go out and kill people, but I'm saying that the way in which the way in which he flips back and forth between terror, the affect of terror and the affect of love is very recognizable yeah. uh, in terms of, of what we know from the cultic. Yeah, I guess uh, working with the internet, people are, alone at their computers. So it's, I mean, obviously you're not gonna be very effective, you know, using the same techniques that you would use if people are living in the compound and you're providing them the grain and everything. So a twisting, a, a, um, you know, a, a twisting of the idea of individuality and personal freedom to include being racist or uh, being, you know, uns- in the case of, uh, the COVID denialism acting in a way that puts others at risk. Well, it's, it's almost like this COVID denialism or conspirituality is like the religion. And then the, the, uh, the individual personalities are the, uh, you know, not exactly cults, but they're preachers. They're like, uh, preachers within that religion. Yeah, they're, they're definitely, they're definitely preachers within it. So you're making a good point, which is that, which is that uh, conspirituality is becoming a kind of content uh, category uh, in which uh, just like modern Buddhism would be, or just like modern yoga would be in which charismatic leaders can take particular positions and, and carve out market niches. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, because because they they've now like basically anybody can jump in and 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 use the use that particular discourse or those words and and it's instantly recognizable yeah. uh, in terms of in terms of of uh, positioning cultural positioning and yeah. then what would be new would be you know okay well what demographic is this person speaking to and you know uh, what, how, what particular exactly what right what 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 wedge of the wellness pie are they going to be able to capture with this uh you know are they too racist for this part but you know not racist enough for that part you know is there are they particularly germanic in their eco-fascism and is that going to be attracted attractive to people in northern california instead of you know people in you know who might be more culturally sensitive in in new mexico you know it's like it's it's everybody's everybody's going to have everybody's going to have a window on it and but the basic but the basic um you know themes are 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 pretty much laid down now as tracks 
there's a demand for it, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to, I don't want to end on a, um, yeah, <laughs> don't want to end too, too on a too dark of a note. But <laughs> well, let but me I, jump I, to. I uh, oh, right. sorry. Uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. Go what, ahead. What, uh, yeah, I mean, conspirituality. I guess uh, I just wanted to mostly point people in the direction of of um, listening to conspirituality podcasts because you guys go a lot in depth and you cover more in depth kind of what you've already said here and uh and a lot of specifics i'm on i just finished episode seven myself i'm still catching up so i just finished the uh, yeah. the northrop one um but uh jumping back to in general cults in the yoga world i if 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 there's someone out there listening um maybe a younger person maybe not maybe a little bit right. older but somebody who is attracted to yoga they they think that there's something almost a little bit mystical and uh magical like it's it's ancient it's indian it's sort of related to you know buddha meditated for so long and attained enlightenment and yoga is all about you know be, becoming a perfect vessel for meditation so people are drawn from kind of a spiritual place and a a, a, a physical mental health and emotional health place they're, they're being drawn to the yoga path. What advice would you give to them so that they can have a good journey through their yoga path and avoid some of these pitfalls and cults? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, this is, this isn't the first thing that comes to mind. I don't want to, I don't want to pitch my book, but I, I, I do <laughs> no, want, I, I do, I do want to say, I do want to say that the last, the last section, the sixth section of practice and all is coming is, is kind of a, a workbook that um, covers uh, what I put together as eight best practices for identifying and resisting cultic dynamics uh, and in the yoga and Buddhism worlds. And, and they consist of things like um, recognize when you are situationally vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. So one, you know, that would be, you know, have you, are you going through a divorce? Uh, are you, uh, have you been laid off? <laughs> Is there a pandemic? Uh, have you, have you lost a family member? Uh, have you become ill? Um, all of these very normal life events uh, make us vulnerable to groups that can present themselves as uh, you know, in the words of, of Alexandra Stein, a false safe havens, a place that, you know, a place that can answer all of your questions. Mm -hmm. uh, people, people don't, people are recruited to high demand groups because, um, not because they have daddy issues or not because they're naive or gullible or something like that. They're, they're recruited usually in, in, during times of what's called situational vulnerability, which happens to everybody. So to recognize that is one thing. To recognize um, the drive towards idealization uh, and uh, transference onto a charismatic leader. To recognize what charis charisma is itself, uh, that, that a person for some reason will have 
some kind of radiant quality that makes them appear in a social setting as though they're special or they have some special insight. That in itself isn't a negative thing in by definition, but it is something to find a red flag within because, right. you know, in the end, nobody's more special than anybody else. And, and, you know, uh, uh, attractiveness is, is something that is both, both positive, but also is manipulable. Um, to recognize things like, uh, you know, disorganized attachment or, or the very sharp mixed sensation of being afraid of something, but being drawn to it at the same time. Mm. Uh, to recognize jargon is the person using words and phrases that uh, have a hidden or coded meaning that is only really relevant within the group and you have to join the group to be part of that meaning uh to recognize um uh you know whether or not the person has a scope of practice or do they feel free to sort of issue statements or or proclamations about every part of life you know that's right, one thing that right. that that drives me crazy about conspiritualists is that you know they're like yoga teachers who pretend to know something about epidemiology right. epidemiology yeah. like it just doesn't make any sense like what is it about the grandiosity of yoga teachers that makes them think that they know something about this incredibly complex topic did they did they get that because they were told that you know chanting a mantra would give them penetrating insight into the nature of reality or like anyway so right. so um there's a couple of other things one is to um uh, uh one is to um reject uh the notion of uh i got minism which is to recognize that you know if you have had a good experience within a group um, that, and, and then you hear of somebody in that same group being harmed, mm. uh, you take that seriously. Yeah. Uh, and you don't, you don't reject it and say, and say, oh, well, you know, um, I, I don't know what, I don't know what their problem is, or I don't know why they, you know, uh, they, they had a bad experience. It must be their karma or something like that. Right. Like that's called, that's called I got minism. Uh, and and it it uh, hopefully the idea will help people understand that when they participate in a group they actually are responsible for what happens in it uh, and so yeah so there's a number of things I think that uh, over time I think it's going to take a while but I think they can become more or less standard within yoga and Buddhism training uh, and you know there's a lot of social science to back these things up and and um, it's not like it's not like uh, cultic dynamics have to be mysterious to us anymore um, you know they're 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 out there in the open to see and I think we can understand them and and just start saying no yeah you have a website as well right I do. It's just uh, my. It's just my uh, name, MatthewRemski.com. That's R E M S K I. Uh, that's right. And uh, people can check out. You have seven books, right? That you've written. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um. Pretty much all unrelated. There's one book on uh, that's a commentary, a contemporary commentary on the the Yoga Sutras called Threads of Yoga. Mm -hmm. Um. So uh, yeah, that's that might be of interest to people, and um, yeah. Um, my, my, I think my website's a pretty good, pretty good resource, uh, in terms of, in terms of articles and blog posts. So thank you. Thank you, Edward. Absolutely. 
and uh, I'll see you, see you online. Looking forward to the next episode. Okay, me too. Thanks so much. Certainly. Take care. You too. Thank you, Matthew Remsky, for joining me on the To Be a Yogi podcast today. Special thanks also to Brian Dahl for the music you're hearing right now, and that's B-R-Y-I-N-D-A-L-L if you're going to Google that. And most importantly, thank you to you, the aspiring yogi listening to this podcast. Please visit the show notes. There you'll find that article Matthew mentioned, The Emergence of Conspirituality by Charlotte Ward and Professor David Voss. And please visit conspirituality.net or search for Conspirituality Podcast on the Apple platform formerly known as iTunes, whatever they call it now, or whatever podcasting platform or app you prefer. And please visit matthewremsky.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask in public. It's mostly for the people around you, not for you. If you catch the COVID virus and you don't know you have it, then you willfully refuse to wear a mask in social gatherings or public places. You are, in fact, killing people. Please stop. I love you, but you've got to stop. Namaste.